Welcome everyone to another episode of Bread and Butter Emergency Medicine. We have the pleasure today to join Dr. Liz Powell for a discussion regarding motor vehicle collisions, particularly blunt trauma in the pod patient. Dr. Powell, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Dr. McKean. It is a true pleasure. And shout out to all of the medical students and residents out there listening right now. It it is a pleasure having you here with us. There are a number of things that we'd like to discuss. As these patients, I don't know about how everyone else feels about this, but when I was a young resident, seeing a patient being brought to our care area, boarded and collared, that's just laying there, it was a kind of a bit of a conundrum for me to say, how do I approach this patient? What are the first steps? What are things I shouldn't miss? Uh, I think hopefully we can gather some of that information today. Before we continue with our discussion about the motor vehicle collision patient, a word about some geography and local lingo. The SRU, or SHRU, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is the shock and resuscitation unit and is the area of the highest acuity patients in our emergency department, place for those who are critically ill. Stepping down from there in terms of acuity is the pod patients, or A, B, and C pod, which are geographic destinations, but all of the same acuity. Traditionally, B-Pod is where our interns do their primary service in conjunction with the fourth-year resident, or R4, who acts in a supervisory role. Kind of in a chronological order for this this patient, we can start discussing when you see EMS bringing this patient into the room, uh, boarded and collared as mentioned, what are some kind of vital informations for history or history present illness that you can gather uh, from these colleagues? Sure. So the most important thing is when you see one of these guys roll into B-Pod, you really want to go in with EMS because what you'll find is they'll typically leave pretty quickly after they move the board over. They'll give a quick report to the nurse and then leave. So this is this is the particular patient where you actually want to walk in okay. and have a discussion with EMS and also hear what they're telling the nurse as well. Then that also allows you, after you're done talking to them, to quickly get the patient off of the backboard. Okay. Because we know the backboards aren't good for patients. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone mm-hmm. for you. So typically when I see a patient rolling into a room on a backboard, I walk in, ask EMS to hang out for a second. Specific things you're looking for when you're talking to them as related to motor vehicle uh, collisions are speed. There is a bomb on this bus. The damage to the car the location of the patient within the car, and then were there other injured patients? So did somebody die in this accident that they didn't even transport? Mm-hmm. Is someone now getting intubated in the shrew that was as part of this accident? That gives you a gauge for the type of force that was involved in this accident, okay. even if the patient that you're seeing in front of you is not particularly complaining of anything mm-hmm. that you would consider to be major complaints. Okay. So what you kind of have to think about with these motor vehicle collisions when you're talking to EMS is it's all about G-forces. Okay. So it's about the speed that you're going, because remember, speed is going to be velocity squared. So the speed that you're going is going to have a lot to do with the G-forces that your body is exposed to. And then also the stopping distance. So you're going to be exposed to many more Gs at a shorter stopping distance than a longer stopping distance. Okay. So these are all things that you can ascertain from EMS, which is painting you a picture of potential injuries in this patient. Mm-hmm. So those are all important things to know from EMS. Okay. And I found they've been very good, at least in my experience, too, with that initial history. Some of them will even have pictures on their phone uh, that they take. And I think ultimately have a lot more experience than I do in assessing 
does this motor vehicle collision look bad in terms of how it translates for the patient injury? Right, correct. Um, so I found that, I agree with you, very helpful that they will provide a report to nurses, but that kind of impression, I think, doesn't come across unless you get to talk in person. Right, and in the age of the smartphone, back when I was doing EMS, we all had flip phones, which you couldn't really take pictures of our mm-hmm. accidents in. But now, in the age of smartphones, you're going to be able to see, hey, that cab had 15 centimeters of intrusion mm-hmm. while the entire back end of that car is off. It's just, this is all just painting you a picture before you even see the patient of mm-hmm. the type of force that they were exposed to right. in that accident. I mean, they, they can just Snapchat to you a picture these days. No. Correct. <laughs> and I believe post it places as well. Yeah, so, yeah, right. yeah. Um, so how about history from the patient themselves, assuming that they're awake, able to talk to you? Sure. Um, so, and I think that's actually a really good point, is if they're rolling back into B-Pod, you do want to make sure that they are awake and talking to right. you. We have all been surprised in B-Pod before by the... That's what makes B-Pod so amazing to work in. Mm-hmm. So, that's actually a great point. Really, that's the next thing you want to do after you talk to EMS, is mm-hmm. go to the patient and just make sure that they're awake, they're able to answer your questions. And if they are not, the next step really should be to go get your R4, because they may need to be re-triaged somewhere okay. else. So, that's actually a really great kind of initial point. Right. So when, uh, when I go up to the patient, so I finished talking to EMS, I walk up to the patient, introduce myself, ask them what their name is. And then I essentially just like to know what's hurting them. Hey, mm-hmm. what's hurting? And then I typically also like to know, do they remember the car accident? Um, I like to make sure that they didn't pass out beforehand. So one of a, a classic Westchester case I had was a guy that was involved in a very minor car accident that ended up having a type A aortic dissection because oh, he had okay. a, a sinkable episode and then crashed into a pole. Okay. So you want to make sure the patient's awake. You want to make sure that they generally remember the accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from that point, you know, I say, hey, did you lose consciousness? Did you hit your head, Mm -hmm. get knocked out? Uh, What's hurting you now? Um, Were you able to walk around on scene is Mm -hmm. another big one because that kind of triages them differently. So sometimes they're stuck in the car, have to be extricated. Sometimes they've been walking around on the scene for 10 minutes and then all of a sudden their lower back starts to hurt okay. as the adrenaline wears off. Okay. So those are all important things you want to know from the patient. And then I think we'll get into a little bit more about some additional kind of background history uh, from the patient. Right. And that kind of dovetails from what you were mentioning about that aortic dissection patient, for example. You know, what are some other in terms of past medical history, surgical, maybe not relating to the event itself, but that you find pertinent to know about the patient? So one thing you should ask every single patient, I don't care if they're 9 or 90, is if they're on any type of anticoagulation. Mm, And that should just be an automatic question that you're asking them. You may ask them about medications, but I'm sure this will come as a shock to many of our medical students and residents. Oftentimes, our patients do not know all of the medications that they are on. So I specifically ask about anticoagulation, and I actually go a step forward and, and list Different medicines. Hey, are you on Coumadin, Xarelto, Pradaxa, Eliquis, Plavix, Aspirin? Okay. You just, because that is, that is, that becomes a different patient mm-hmm. if they're on Coumadin, if they're on Xarelto. Uh, that just becomes a different patient. So those are things mm-hmm. you want to know. If you have a suspicion that they've had a syncopal episode before their car accident, which happens, mm-hmm. you want to know about cardiac history, okay. any other medical history. And then as we've unfortunately been seeing uh, more recently with heroin use, We've had a fair number of these guys that uh, that use heroin, get in their car, get in accidents, and then when EMS gets to them, they're initially unresponsive and have to get Narcan. So certainly drug and alcohol okay. use for both masking of distracting injuries mm-hmm. and also for treatment down the road is important to okay. know as well. Okay. 
in addition to that, part of, I think, this assessment, like you mentioned, one of the early steps that you'll do when you see a patient in the room is getting them off the backboard quickly. Um, we won't necessarily go into detail on that, but the, you know, the negative effects of being on the backboard, particularly for a prolonged period of time notwithstanding. Right. Are there any other things that you find uh, you need to do quickly or that are time sensitive sure. for this sure. patient, including physical exam points? Sure. So what I would suggest when you walk in the room, you started talking to the patient is Think about trauma the same way, regardless of whether you're watching a patient get assessed in the shrew by mm -hmm. the trauma team and our emergency department team, or you're seeing them in B-pod. Because if you develop those good habits early, those are happy habits that you carry with you, and it'll become automatic, kind of ingrained into okay. you. So if they're talking to me, I know that they have an airway that's intact. Mm -hmm. I listen to their breath sounds every single time because I want to make sure that they have equal breath sounds bilaterally. Okay. Pneumothorax is a big killer in trauma. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure, hey, okay, they've got good breath sounds. They're saturating well. I'm doing okay with that. Check pulses. This is this is your ABC approach. These things take seconds to do mm -hmm. and can really be assessed almost simultaneously as well. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I like to make sure that they're moving their arms and legs. And it's typically at that point in time that I like to get them off of the backboard and fully expose them. Okay. And I think that's really important in trauma as well. Because unfortunately, especially as we approach our winter months, so as you've got you know residents working in, uh, in B-Pod in the winter months, these guys are coming to come in in about 18 layers of clothing. <laughs> You got a layer. Yep. And you're not going to be able to see that massive hematoma on their anterior chest wall right. or that seatbelt mark along their abdomen if you don't fully expose them. That's really important. It can be challenging because they'll be in the cervical collar. They'll be on the backboard. But that's really one of the first things you need to do okay. after you've assessed life threats mm -hmm. is get them undressed every single time. And if you're doing it every single time, you're not going to miss anything. To share with you a case that was transferred actually to CPOD mm -hmm. um, just last week was an older lady who was on aspirin who had a trip and fall at home mm -hmm. and uh, had a CAT scan of her head and cervical spine because she had complained of loss of consciousness. Um, and it wasn't until after she got back from the CAT scan, they were putting her back on the monitor. She was still dressed, mm -hmm. took her shirt off, and noticed this huge hematoma on her chest wall. Oh, so she ended yeah. up, long story short, getting transferred down to university, had a hemothorax, had multiple rib fractures, had a scapular fracture. So okay. just the importance of being able to find those injuries. Right. Um, so you've got them fully exposed. Then what you really want to do is, is get them off of the backboard because what I would emphasize to you guys is even short periods of time on a backboard lead to skin breakdown and can lead to respiratory depression, especially in our older patients. Okay. This is, this is a huge point for me. They need to be off that backboard. Okay. Right. A backboard is not spinal stabilization. Now, a cervical collar is a little bit different. We can mm -hmm. talk about that in a second. But okay. I want you I do not want you to think of a backboard as providing any type of spinal stabilization. Okay. Think about your patients up in the ICU right now. Right. That have lumbar compression fractures, that have mm -hmm. thoracic compression fractures, that have some type of transverse process fracture. None of those guys are on backboards. Right? Correct. Correct. So we have spinal precautions where we can keep them flat. Mm -hmm. So if they have midline tenderness and you think they need imaging, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second, you don't necessarily want to send a bolt upright and let them walk to the bathroom. You can keep them flat. Mm -hmm. But that backboard is doing nothing positive for them at that point in time, and it's potentially doing negative harm to them, especially in your older patients, your kyphotic patients that mm -hmm. don't fit well on the backboard anyway. Right. So you've assessed your life threats. Um, you're working on getting them fully exposed and mm -hmm. you're going to roll them off of the backboard. So you're going to do something called a log roll in this situation. Okay. So what you need is you need somebody holding the head. Mm -hmm. That person is going to be kind of the boss. They're going to be in charge of counting to roll the patient back and forth. Mm -hmm. You as the doc are going to be pressing on their back. So you need to be on one side of the bed. And then you need to have, mo with most of our patients, two other individuals that are helping literally log roll the patient to the other side so that you can expose their back. Okay. 
when you have them rolled, so it's one, two, three, the mm-hmm. person holding the head, the two guys or gals doing your log roll will roll the patient up. And then what you literally want to do is run your hand down the center of their spine mm-hmm. from their thoracic to lumbar. Mm-hmm. Does this hurt? Yes or no? 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 And what you're assessing for is true midline tenderness versus paraspinal tenderness. Okay. You can also, at that particular point in time, some cervical collars will have almost a hole in the back that you can just go ahead. You can look at their posterior cervical spine. Just poke in and feel that. Yeah, exactly okay. right. Exactly right. So the cervical collar is actually providing stabilization for a potential injury. Now, mm-hmm. when they come in with EMS, they come in in those hard kind of plastic collars and inevitably yeah. leave a mark on their neck and are kind of variably sized depending on the individual. Mm-hmm. You may want to consider switching them out to a different collar. I mm-hmm. think, what, do we have Philly? Yeah, I think Philadelphia the, collars, yep, the Philly collars in, here. at the U. So switching off to something a little bit more comfortable. But just keep in mind that unlike the backboard, that cervical collar is providing a uh, stable stabilization to okay. a potentially unstable cervical spine injury. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the imaging. But right. if they have, for now, we'll just leave it at, if they have midline tenderness, just leave the collar in place. And okay. I would say if you have any doubt whatsoever, press, examine, mm-hmm. but leave the collar in place until you've had an opportunity to talk to your R4. Cool. So you've done your kind of initial, you know, pressing on their back. <laughs> and then my main recommendation is you've assessed your ABCDs, you press on their back. They're now off of the backboard. I perform a head-to-toe examination on every single trauma patient. Okay. okay. I'm essentially pressing on everything, mm-hmm. looking in everything, looking at the skin, looking for bruising to see what hurts and what doesn't. And right. I think that's the best way to, to do this. Yeah. So yeah, I literally just start, start at the top of their head. Do they have any evidence of lacerations, abrasions, contusions? I look in their ears. Do they have any evidence of hemotympanum or blood behind their uh, tympanic membrane? Okay. If they've got a bloody nose, I actually want to look in their nose to see if there's swelling at the septum called a septal hematoma. Okay. I want to look in their mouth. Do they have broken teeth? Mm-hmm. This is, and these all these are things that just take seconds. This is just a quick zipping right. down. Yeah. Look at their anterior neck, especially if they're in a cervical collar. Look at their anterior neck. You want to be looking for swelling. Um, especially in the setting of maybe somebody that had a malpositioned seatbelt across the front of their neck. Mm-hmm. Um, tracheal deviation for things like pneumothorax is going to be a very rare finding. What I'm really looking more for is ecchymosis and swelling of the okay. neck. Same with the chest wall. I've already listened to their breath sounds, but do they have any chest wall tenderness? Is there any bruising from the seatbelt that I see? Mm-hmm. Same deal with the belly. I'm going to press on the belly. Um, press on the pelvis. So it's not really a... I think people think of it as kind of like a rock almost more, but it's really more of like a squeeze. <laughs> squeeze together, I think, so like yeah. from the sides coming in. Exactly kind of right. Okay. Is the best is kind of the best way to do that. And then, you know, just pressing down their arms and legs. Does this mm-hmm. hurt? Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Are you moving everything? Do you have any more lacerations, contusions, bruises? Mm-hmm. Because what I'm doing in my mind as I'm doing that is I'm already calculating what imaging I'm doing while I'm in the room. Okay. Well, I think it's a great point that you bring up about the expedited assessment for the patient in this situation. I think something I ran into a lot as an intern that I found frustrating is these patients come in, it's unannounced, you know, it's brought by squad, they're rolled back to your pod, you already had a plan of who you're going to see next Mm -hmm. amongst patients you were Mm -hmm. expecting. Mm -hmm. And this often felt like an interruption of my workflow. But honestly, things go much smoother when you just address it right away, I think, not only for the patient's safety, but I think also for your workflow as a whole, you're going to be seeing the patient regardless uh, I think expediting not only for their safety, taking them off the backboard and doing this quick assessment, but most of the time, story's not that complicated. It's not right. going to be a long encounter with a big history. Um, the important points, like you've highlighted, and getting a quick assessment, I think you can find that the management of these patients can be very quick Correct. And, and efficient. Probably this conversation probably took longer 
than initially going through and actually doing that on right. a patient. Yeah, and instead of piecemeal things here and there, and I mean, like you're bringing up too, going in with EMS in the room, your nursing staff's going to be in the room getting report. The hardest thing I've found on delayed trauma assessments is wrangling people to come help you roll and get the clothes off and everything else. You're in there with at least three or four people at this point, and it makes things go a lot. Many hands make light work with these patients. And that is that is actually that is an expert advanced tip, is if EMS is already in the room, they can be your hands to help roll the patient. Yep. Because inevitably, you're in B-pod. You're going to have the sitter. The sitter's not going to be able to come over and help you roll the right. patient. But you've got two guys from EMS. And how I sell it is, hey, if you guys help us out, you're going to get your backboard back. So that they yeah. don't have to worry about either coming back later or having the backboard sent to them. Mm-hmm. And it's incentive for them as well. And normally those guys are more than happy to help right. you out because yeah. they've got to get a signature and do a couple other things anyway. And to be able to leave with their equipment mm-hmm. is an extra incentive for them. And it helps you out um, because you don't have to go track down people. Right, so. certainly. So jumping ahead, we you alluded to this when we were talking about the physical exam. Yes, it was a teaser. Imaging and trauma is yes. a big question that I think many of us have. And it ranges from anything from simple x-rays all the way up to CT or more advanced imaging too. And just in the sense of carte blanche, imaging in this scenario, what do you think is important? Sure. So that's that's a really great question. And what I would argue is, is that unfortunately geography has a little bit to do with that. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that if you end up in, if you are triaged to the shrew, you are probably going to get more radiation during your emergency department stay. Becoming radioactive. Than you necessarily would if you get triaged to be pot. Right. So let's talk about the various options that you have. So you can you have the ultrasound option. Mm-hmm. There's the FAST exam, which is the Focus Assessment and Sonography of Trauma. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling they probably wanted to call it the FAST exam and then had to come up with a name for that. That often Just, is the case. you got to get a cool theory, acronym and then make it fit. Which we can certainly talk more about in a second. But you have the ultrasound option. You have the x-ray option. Mm-hmm. Probably the most common x-rays that you're going to be ordering are going to be your chest x-ray because pneumothorax is a killer to miss. Mm-hmm. And then your extremity x-rays. And then you have your CAT scans. Let's talk a little bit about the trauma lingo for just a second because mm-hmm. you may have the R4 walk out of a room with you and say, order the trauma pan scan. <laughs> to which you will say, what is the trauma pan scan? Yeah. Think of the trauma pan scan as a head-to-pelvis CAT scan, but you need to know what you're ordering specifically. Mm -hmm. So the true trauma pan scan, where you want to irradiate just about everything you can, is Mm -hmm. going to be a non-contrast CAT scan of the head, Mm -hmm. looking for bleeding broken bones, a non-contrast CAT scan of the cervical spine, thoracic spine, and lumbar spine, which interestingly is actually reconned from the chest, abdomen, and pelvis CAT scan. Um, And then you have your chest CAT scan, with IV contrast and your abdominal and pelvis CAT scan with IV contrast. You do the IV contrast looking for vascular injury. Okay. Now, before you just go order your trauma pan scan on every trauma patient you see in BPOD, I would encourage you to talk to your R4 to make sure that is in fact appropriate. And there are some specific patients with low mechanisms, uh, but maybe more elderly patients that we feel as though we need to do that scan on, but we don't want to give them the IV contrast bolus that mm-hmm. they would get. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's a little bit of wiggle room to do those without contrast. But I would say if you're thinking that your patient had a significant enough injury that they need that type of scan, I would talk to your R4 first okay. before you go order it. But if somebody says to you at some point in time, because I'm as guilty as this as an person, just order the trauma pan scan. That, that, is, that trauma, is to what you were referring to. That is the trauma pan scan. Yeah. Uh, So those are really your main imaging options in trauma. So what you guys will discover if you go watch a patient that is being evaluated in the shrew is that every patient evaluated in the shrew for trauma 
gets a fast exam. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you in the pod, not every patient that you are having that you are taking care of will have a fast exam. Okay. That's just it's it's a little bit of a triage difference. If you're sick enough to go to the shrew, you probably deserve a fast exam. So, what is a fast exam? Well, if if you're here, if you're listening to this right now, you may have not had experience with this yet. So, the fast exam, and I would mm-hmm. encourage you to have your R four go in with you if they're doing it. Um, so that you can see what this is. Because I think talking about it is great, but seeing it, I think, will make it much clearer. It translates a bit more, I think. Correct. Right. So what you're looking for in the FAST exam is essentially bleeding. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be looking in four primary locations. You're going to be looking in the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, pericardium, and the suprapubic view. Mm-hmm. Those are the most common areas where you're going to be able to find bleeding. Now, if you want to get fancy, you can also add lung sliding in there as well for your more subtle pneumothoraces, mm-hmm. uh, which we won't talk about specifically here. But something, that's, that, something to ask about if that's correct, coming correct. up. Yeah. And if you're interested, and what's, what would even be cool is if you had a patient that you knew had a pneumothorax on x-ray, you could even go back in with the ultrasound to be able to demonstrate that right. lack, lack of seeing, seeing the abnormal. Correct. Yeah. So what you're looking for in the right upper quadrant is you're essentially looking between the kidney and the liver. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for black on ultrasound, which is fluid, not necessarily blood. Mm -hmm. But in the setting of trauma, we assume it's blood until proven otherwise. A stripe of kind of black fluid in between the liver and the kidney. Um, That's kind of the one thing you want to look at. You can talk about making sure you're scanning all the way through the kidney for subtle injuries. That's Mm -hmm. fine. What you're looking at is in Morrison's pouch in that space for fluid. Now, you want to be cautious with your patients with ascites because they will likely have fluid there. But once again, in the setting of trauma, it's blood until proven otherwise. Your next view is going to be your sub-xiphoid view where you're pointing up towards the heart. And what you're essentially looking for there is an effusion. Mm -hmm. So hopefully if they were sick enough to have tamponade from their trauma, they would have been triaged to the shrew, but never say never, it's B-pod. This is true. Um, so that is specifically what you're looking for there is an effusion. Okay. Um, I would caution you because you can get just a little bit of very physiologic fluid that you can see. So you may still see a small black stripe. Mm-hmm. But if you're seeing something that looks larger than just the tracest amount of fluid, uh, I would be concerned about an effusion in that mm-hmm. patient. And in trauma, even small acute effusions um, can present symptomatically. Whereas when you think about your oncology patients, they may have rather large effusions that they've been developing over time and are not necessarily developing tamponade physiology. Gotcha. In trauma, it's typically a very small amount of fluid that can lead to that acutely. Okay. You then move over to your left upper quadrant. That's where you're looking between your spleen and your kidney, once again, looking for that stripe of black fluid in between. And then super pubic view, same. You're looking for that kind of black stripe of fluid. Don't be confused by the bladder. It's obviously fluid, so it'll be filled as well. Um, but it's going to be outside the bladder that you're going to see that fluid. So that's your FAST exam, and it truly is a FAST exam. Mm-hmm. Um, like many other things, like our initial assessment on the patients, somebody that has done hundreds of these will probably be able to do that in about 30 to 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's a very quick test. So I typically, when I have a patient in the pod, will only reserve my FAST exam for patients that I have a concern have abdominal pain, abdominal tenderness, significant mechanism, but got triaged to the pod because they Mm -hmm. weren't having complaints. But I would not say that universally I am doing a fast exam on every single pod patient that rolls through the door. Right. Some of your indications in that situation were targeted symptomatically and based on the exam that would make you suspicious for an intra-abdominal or, or pericardial tamponade type Correct. of physiology too. Correct. Okay. And I would also extend that to, if I've known that there has been a death in the car, a serious injury to the car, 
even if the patient is not specifically complaining about abdominal pain, that may still be somebody that I wheel in the ultrasound because it's such a quick exam. I'll do it while I'm talking to the patient, mm-hmm. honestly, um, just because that patient in my mind has had a more significant mechanism than your low speed rear end. Right. A pretest probability of, in- of injury is probably, I would imagine, higher in a patient yes, that's been in that type of accident. Yes, okay. sir. So good points on the fast and who to consider it in and who not to. I mean, albeit you're saying it's a very quick examination when you've had some practice with it, but there are a limited number of machines in the department. And if that becomes a limiting factor, keep that in mind with the ones that you're deciding to do it on or not. Um, regarding plain film images, sure. you mentioned chest x-rays are mm-hmm. a relatively, I don't want to apply universal in any situation, right. but it's one of the more common x-rays we'll get. Right. Are there any indications that you find to get x-rays of other locations? Sure. So, and I would put a plug to the chest x-ray. I, I would suspect it's probably the most common x-ray we mm-hmm. order in trauma and I would say that's because the downside of doing a chest x-rays is so low mm-hmm. but the upside is, is that you get to catch the pneumothorax right yeah which could potentially kill somebody I am so sorry so if you're having somebody that's complaining of any type of shortness of breath chest wall discomfort have a very low threshold just to go ahead and order the chest Right. X-ray. The downside to getting one, I think, is pretty minimal, if anything. In terms of uh, other areas for, like, limbs and things like that, I, I don't know how your approach has been. For me, in general, I have a pretty low threshold there as well. Correct. Um, in, in the sense of if someone has discomfort with palpation in those locations, I generally get x-rays of those locations, yeah. too. I don't know if you feel the same way. I would completely agree with that. So that was back to our exam where we're essentially pressing on everything. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm doing is I'm thinking to myself, all right, that hurts I'll x-ray it. Okay, that doesn't hurt. I don't need to x-ray that. Mm -hmm. So that's absolutely correct. And then also another plug for the pelvis Mm -hmm. x-ray, especially in your older patients. And then I would also say in your altered patients Mm -hmm. as well. Though, once again, hopefully they're not in B-pod, but if they are altered. um, Pneumothorax can kill people. Bleeding within the pelvis can kill people. Right. So in in our altered trauma patients, um, in our patients that are having tenderness when we squeeze the pelvis, low threshold to get the pelvis x-ray as well. Okay. We're going to pause for a moment to give ourselves a breather. Please join us in the next segment, or part two, for the continuation of the discussion with Dr. Powell regarding the MDC patient, particularly with emphasis on CT scan imaging decision-making, as well as disposition.